0: so great to see everyone here this morning and so i am i am honored to be part of a church that so many people use their talents and the gifts in meaningful ways uh not just up front here but in the back and kids and and all the different kind of ministries we have and so i'm just so thankful for so many people who serve and uh i just can't say that enough So we are right in the middle of a series going through the book of Galatians. And this morning we'll be at the end of Galatians chapter 5. And so if you have your Bibles, you can turn there and prepare for that uh, for when we get there. But uh, if you don't, have no worries because the scripture will also be on the screen when we read it together. Uh, But before we do that, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dear God, thank you so much for today. A day in which we can come together and praise you as your family. Praise you as your people. Lord, I just pray for this time as we open up your word that you can bring it to life in our hearts and our minds. That you can show us who you truly are. That you can show us who we are in light of you. And of how you have saved us through your son Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray that we can be moved to respond with all of our life. That we can be moved through your word to live like your children in all the ways that cause us to do so. Lord, we love you and we seek you and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So family matters. I'm not just talking about Steve Urkel and Carl Winslow. If you guys are familiar with the whole show, family matters. Family matters, right? Families tend to look alike. This actually came home really uh, big in my life just uh, a few weeks ago as my third son was born, my third child, my second son was born. And uh, yeah, he's a carbon copy of the other ones when they were babies, right? They look exactly alike. Family matters. They, they look alike. Families tend to act alike. We think alike and so on. We see that, that family matters. That uh, people would always claim to me and my brothers that we looked alike and we always would claim we don't see it, but everyone else would argue that they did. Because family matters. We, there's, a, there's a strain in our lives where family actually determines and, and influences us so greatly because family matters. And I'm proud to be of the family I am, and so I'm always talking about how I, I like being a curious, and I try to in, impute that or give that to my kids. I tell them, when you leave this house, when you go out in the world, you're a curious, and so you should act like a curious. And that might not be the best thing, because I don't want a lot of know-it-alls and running around and people think they can't be wrong and all that stuff. But the idea is there, right? We want family to matter, and we know how family matters and it influences how we live in this world. And so when we get to the book of Galatians and we start reading Paul's argument, so much is built on this concept that family matters and that who, whose you are, who you're, you kind of trace your lineage back to, matters. And as Christians, he is is telling these people reading this letter, and he's telling us nowadays that family matters, and it matters because you are a child of God. If you're in Christ, you are his son, you're his daughter, and that matters because that determines not just a title for you, but it determines your whole life as you think about how you live this life out. So let's see this, and I would say we see this in Galatians chapter 4 in these last few verses, starting in verse 21. And this passage right here is bringing to a conclusion a lot of uh, the last few chapters when Paul is talking about basically different ways in which we see how we relate to God, and he's bringing it to conclusion uh, through this kind of example. And so Galatians chapter 4, starting in verse 21, says this, Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, You who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has has a husband. Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. Well, what does the Scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman." It's freely recognized actually by a lot of scholars that this passage might be some of the hardest to grasp and understand in the book of Galatians. and it's, It's like that because it's so heavily rooted in the historical example that Paul is using. But when we pull back and we look at what he's saying in conjunction with what he says before, I would argue that his main point is driven home at the end that we're called to live as children of the promise. Now Paul is talking about Abraham, he's using his examples, he's talking about how we relate to God, but his main point is that how we interact with life, how we view our relationship with God should be that of children of the promise, that we are not in slavery to the law, we are not under the Mosaic Covenant, but we are children of the promise, and as children of the promise, as children of faith by grace, then we know that we should live like it. That how we live before God should be as his children, be as the sons of God through Jesus Christ. We should live as children of the promise. And he builds up this case using this historical example of Abraham. So we got to say, hey, who is Abraham and what is he talking about here? And why does he use this case? Well, for the last few chapters, Paul has been kind of pointing out how these Judaizers, this party that was coming behind Paul and perverting the gospel, they were tracing their lineage back to Moses and saying, hey, to be a Christian, you first must be a Jew, and to be a Jew is to be a follower of Moses and his law. We have to follow that way of living and thinking of how we relate to God so they're tracing their lineage and saying, hey, this is who we are. We're children of Moses. And, and Paul comes here, yes, but we should be children of Abraham. He's basically trumping their lineage card. He says, "Where well, you're tracing your lineage back or your, your history of, their, of your faith back to Moses. I'm going to go one step back further to Abraham, the father of the whole faith. And he says, this is who we truly are. This is where really, we really, really trace our lineage to. The Abraham, the father of the faith, who was saved not by following the law that came 400 years later, but was saved by grace through faith. This is who we are, children of Abraham. And that's why Paul uses this example of who Abraham was. And he uses an example of how who we are in light of that. But what he's doing is basically saying family matters, right? He's saying lineage is important. It's very important for the Jewish people back here then because that's how they saw themselves as the chosen people of God as descended from one of the 12 tribes of Israel. And so they really kind of uh, traced themselves to this Mosaic law that kind of gave them all the markers that hemmed in their life. And so they knew, knew who they were because of that. And that's why they were urging people to follow this law. But lineage matters now, days two. It's funny, there's this uptick in how lineage matters so much because now we have this thing called DNA testing where you can spit it in a tube, you send it off, and they're going to send you a nice little graph showing where your descendants came from. And I don't know if you've ever seen those commercials, but they're kind of funny where you have some guy talking about, hey, I used to think I was Scottish, and so I dressed in a kilt and I played the bagpipes, but then I got these results back and I found I was German, so now I have to go get some lederhosen. There's this idea that, hey, our lineage truly matters. That always bugged me in some fashion, but this idea that lineage matters and who we are, who we trace our lineage back to truly matters, and which is why Paul, we can understand how he goes, we trace our lineage, maybe not physically, maybe not racially, ethnically, but we trace our lineage spiritually back to Abraham, the father of the faith. Who was saved. Why? Because he trusted the promise of God. He was saved by grace through faith. So, what is the story of Abraham and why does he use it in this example? Well, let's just talk about the story of Abraham, who he was. If you guys remember Abraham, he was this guy that we pick up in the book of Genesis who was called out of the land of Ur and he was called by God to follow him. And he was given a promise by God. Basically, hey, you are going to be my person. You're going to be my people. And from you is going to now come a descendants that number more than the stars in the sky, that number more than the sand on the seashore. Out of you is going to become my people. It's going to be a great nation. And Abraham's, how could this be? For I have no kids. I'm, I'm 100 years old here. My wife is 90 years old, and she has passed the years of childbearing. How could we possibly be this, the, uh, the father and a mother of a great nation? And God says, trust me. And Abraham trusted in the promises of God. But when that promise was not fulfilled after a few years, many years, Sarah convinced him to fulfill the promise from, by his own means and his own efforts. By taking Hagar, her handmaiden, as a second wife and bearing a child through her, Ishmael. But then God comes back and says, this is not the, your descendant that's going, to be, that's going to make this great nation through, for this is not the child of the promise. You are waiting for the child of promise. And so he delivered Isaac through Sarah. Sarah miraculously having her have a a son Isaac who is the child of promise we can look at that, and, and Paul makes it clear that these two kids and these two women are, are set up as these examples of how we view God and how we view our relationship with God. And so the story of Abraham makes it very clear that there's one according, uh, one son who was born, born according to the flesh, meaning Abraham was trying to grab hold of the promise of God by his own efforts, his own abilities, his own ideas, his own operation, That thinking, I can do this, I can fulfill it on my own, and this is Ishmael, who's not the child of of the promise but then comes Isaac the child of the promise and this was received by faith this was received as God accomplished this miraculous event of a child being born to Sarah who could not bear any chairs like children that God fulfills his own promises so we see this, this dichotomy set up between the child according to the flesh and the, God, the child who is born through the promise That's the history of it. But Paul then says, and he says very clearly, but this can also be interpreted allegorically. What's an allegory? You guys remember what an allegory is from probably 8th grade English class? Basically, an allegory is just a story that has another point to it. That while it has events and characters and, and these things that happen, there's actually another event or another meaning that's pointing to that you can read that and say, oh, this is the allegory. This is what it's really trying to say. If you've ever read uh, C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia, those are allegory. That there's a story, there's a plot, there's characters, but it's really trying to say something different. It's pointing to a different truth. And so Paul says, hey, this story of Abraham and, uh, and Sarah and Isaac and Ishmael, this is a true story, this is a historical story, but there's something deeper we can glean from there. There's something bigger that we can look at At this points to. And he basically says these two women can be interpreted allegorically as the two covenants that God has had with His people. that These two women can be interpreted as these two ways in which God has operated with His people. As He says, these represent these two covenants. And so He's making this distinction between the old covenant that we see in the Mosaic Law and how people have to follow these rules and how they were hemmed in by it versus the new covenant through Jesus Christ and how people are freed from from following that but they're they're saved now by, by faith by grace alone in who Jesus is. John Stott, a, a Bible comment, comment, uh, in the, his Bible commentary of this, says this, God established the old covenant through Moses and the new covenant through Christ, who blo- whose blood confirmed it. And the old Mosaic covenant was based on law, but the new Christian covenant, foreshadowed through Abraham, is based on promises. And the law of God laid the responsibilities on human beings and said, you shall, you shall not. But in the promise, God keeps the responsibility himself and says, I will, I will. It's this idea that that these uh, women and these sons can be interpreted in this allegorical sense that in the old covenant, it's you follow these rules, you obey. But he says, we are children of this new covenant, the children that traces our lineage back to Abraham, the children of the promise where Christ fulfills his own promises, that Christ does it. Christ does it all for us. It also can be interpreted as those two religions as we face how do we interact with God, how do we know God, how do we please God and serve God, these two religions. On the one hand, is the, the woman in slavery, Hagar, and her son, Ishmael. The son and the woman where where Abraham was trying to achieve the promise of God by his own efforts, through his own thinking and his own planning. This is, this is uh, he says, this is allegorically is that slavery to the law. This is the people who believe that they think they should please God by obeying these rules, that they have to do this or they're not going to earn their salvation. This is legalism, man-centered religion at its finest that we can do, we can accomplish, we can take the promise of God and grasp it with our own hands and make them our, for ourselves. This is what he's saying is Hagar and Ishmael represents. That we think that we can somehow climb the stairway to heaven without ever realizing that this is a stairmaster where we're not going anywhere. That is Hagar and Ishmael, children born according to the flesh. He says, on the other hand, is Sarah and Isaac. Child born of the free woman, uh, the child of the promise born for us, that it represents freedom, freedom from being a slave to law, Which it represents grace that God does what He said He's going to do for us perfectly, and that Jesus brings this to us in a perfect salvation as we live as children of the law. <laughs> live as children of the promise, not of the law. And when we look at that, this is an allegorical kind of get confusing we can think of how that's back then but this actually is present for us today about how do we view our relationship with God because that's what he's talking about do we view it as if we are children of slavery and to, to the law as we were descended from Hagar and Israel? Do we view it as we're on this side that I must do or not do, that I must achieve or not achieve, that I must somehow earn some brownie points in heaven for God to look favorably upon me, that I must grab his promises that he has said he's going to give me, but I got to grab them and I got to make them my own by my good deeds or my good efforts or from just being a good and nice person. Is that how we believe? God operates with us? That He smiles or frowns upon us based on how well we're doing that present day? If so, we are operating as children according to the flesh. We're operating as Hagar and Ishmael. But he says, live as children of the promise that when we view God and our relationship with God, we view it through the lens of Jesus Christ, being descendants and lineage from Abraham, the man of faith who received the promise of God, not by his own doing, but because God fulfills his own promises. And as we view that, we realize, hey, we view our relationship with God based on grace, that he gives it. Not because we have earned it, but actually in spite of us not earning it, he gives it of his own free will, of his unmerited graciousness. He just pours out his love upon us. and he gives it through, gives us freedom from having to follow these rules or legislation that he just pours out on love upon us. And the amazing thing happens at that point is that we are changed because of it. That we're changed because His grace has been poured on us. We're changed because His love has been poured on us. That we become children of the promise. That we're fundamentally changed and now we want to live for Him. That all those ways in which people try to earn and try to achieve God's favor, we now start, naturally start doing out of our overflow of love for God. That we want to be His. And we want to act Like his. And so he says, Live as children of the promise. This allegory relates to how do we view faith, Christianity, and how do we view how we relate to God. And I said, He brings it home with that personal application live as children of the promise. As he says, um, in verse 19, now you brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. He's saying, Hey, you brothers, you, you church in Galatia, you people who believe in Jesus Christ, the ones that received the gospel I preached for, to you, you are children of the promise. You are saved by grace through faith. You are saved not because of what you did, but because of what Christ has done. And because of that, you are children of the promise. And if you're children of the promise, live like it, act like it, walk like it through life. That This is who you are in Christ. And how we live out that new identity that Christ has given us. This is a testimony throughout the New Testament, isn't it? When you read again and again about how when we come to know who Christ is, we are transformed, we are changed, we are regenerated, we are rebuilt basically from the inside out, we're made anew. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has gone. Behold, the new has come. That when we know Christ, we are changed. Our identity is changed. We are now in Him. We're now children of that promise. And so that's who we are. Just a little while ago in, in the book of Galatians, Paul says to himself in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, about how he no longer lives, but Christ lives in him. In the life he lives, he lives by faith in the Son of God who loved him and gave himself for him. That he, he now is, un, is unified and, and, and united with Christ to such an extent that he can say, it's Christ living in me that matters. Because my life is gone. My old way of life is gone. It's been crucified with Christ. It's no more. But how do I live in this life? United to my Savior as Him. It's a new identity, a new being in which we are. And Paul says, this is who you are in Christ." now live like it. No longer should you flirt with the ways of the past. No longer should you dabble in the things you used to do. Your eyes, your attentions, your heart should be now directed towards the ways of God because you are His. That while you did nothing to get in and become a child of God, now that you're a child of God, you live like it in response to who He is and you give your life fully to this salvation, this grace this gospel that He has given us that saves us. But then He gives this warning and says, hey, but just at that time He who was born according to flesh persecuted Him who was born according to the Spirit, so it is now. I think in this context He's talking about, hey, you guys know how true this is because I have just preached the gospel to you. I'm now away. And now here come people who are in, firmly in that camp of those who are born according to flesh, and now they're persecuting my teaching. They're trying to lead you astray. They're trying to say, hey, you have to add something to the salvation of Christ. You have to do something to be in. And he says they're perverting it, that there's going to be conflict. And have this conflict right now. Back before, there was conflict in the historical uh, um, example of Ishmael versus Isaac. You guys remember that story? There's this example of, uh, you know, they're kind of at the, the, the fireside, and Ishmael is laughing at Isaac, kind of mocking Isaac. Sarah sees this, doesn't like it, says, hey, what's this slave child doing? And Abraham's probably thinking, the slave child you said I should get. But anyways, it, was he doing, mocking my son? And so you see this historical example of there's conflict here. And Paul says, just like there was conflict there, there's conflict now and we can argue there's going to be conflict, present day, that whenever we seek to live by grace with the reality that we're saved by grace, there will be conflict. There could be people who come in teaching a different gospel, as Paul talks about, who try to lead people astray. That you must add to salvation in Christ, So you must do to achieve or achieve or to earn the love of God. He says, watch out, there will be conflict. And what is his response to this potential conflict? is he quotes directly from Genesis chapter 21, verse 10, when he says, But what what does the Scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of a slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. He says this, he quotes what happened in Genesis where Abraham casts out Ishmael and Hagar, and he quotes as an application for how we operate today. And I think that can be confusing, but I... What it looks like he's saying is that churches need to practice what we call church discipline. Which that has not a good flavor in a lot of people's mouths nowadays because people don't like discipline of any sort. But he's basically saying if a church believes the truth of the gospel and they hold firm to this, that we're children of the promise, then anyone who comes in teaching something contrary to that gospel should be cast out. That anyone who tries to pervert the gospel of Jesus Christ and undermine people's salvation, who creeps in doubts to people's minds about how, whether they're saved or not, should be cast out, that the, the church needs to be protected, because these people will not inherit the promise that's given to the child, a promise. That they're preaching another gospel, which is what Paul has been saying since basically chapter 2 of Galatians, that there cannot be another gospel as preached. That we need to protect the church and fight against false conceptions of how we come to know who God is and how we please God and are one of His, that we need to fight that and protect our church. And all of this, it says, the church needs to live as children of the promise, walking in the ways of who God is, knowing how God has saved us, how He's brought us into a new creation, how He has made us His children. Live as children of the promise. Well, I think there's some implications we can pull from this passage that apply for us in how we view our life in Christ, how we view our life with God. First one is this kind of what we've been hitting on almost through this whole series, that we need to be firm, convicted, convinced of who we are in Christ. That when we think about salvation, we should know how we're saved. When we think about salvation, we should know that it's by grace through faith. When we think about salvation, we know that when we were still sinners, God sent His Son to die for us, that we stand convinced of this, and we won't budge from it, but we need to know how we are saved, and that is the, the grounding of how we respond to God. Because if we know how we're saved, then the follow-up is that we don't become slaves to religion. We don't become slaves to the law. And we don't don't dabble in this idea that maybe we can straddle between these two kind of camps. That we don't think, hey, maybe if we just follow some rules, God will like us better and we'll maybe get into that higher level of heaven, right? If we just do a little bit more... Maybe we can achieve a little bit more and God will will like us a little bit better than he does. And in that way, I think it's a way when we start becoming slaves to religion, we become slaves to the law where we think we are somehow earning something or achieving something that corrupts and damages how we view who Christ is, that he saved us by grace through our faith. That we stand firmly in that camp that we're children of the promised. Saved not because I'm good enough, not because I'm smart enough, not because people like me, not because I've done anything, not because I have achieved, not because I can follow well, not because I've read all the Bible, not because I've had memory verses implanted in my heart, not because I pray a lot, not because I give a whole lot of money to church, not because of any of these reasons that could be really good that we should do, but we're saved by grace through Jesus Christ as we believe in Him as the Son of God sent for us To live for us, to die for us, to rise for us, and who is coming back again for us. We stand on that and we don't become slaves to religion. But we also live as sons, children of God. You have that, it has this weird. Kind of phrasing that might jar us a little bit because he's, he's talking about Hagar and, and uh, Ishmael, he's talking about Sarah and Isaac, and then he starts talking about cities. He talks about that he just also corresponds to this earthly city, Jerusalem. And then, but we're looking forward to the heavenly city. And I would argue this is arguing live as children of God that we're not in this earth looking towards what is founded here, built by human hands, ultimately, that are ultimately we're looking ahead to the city of God who's going to descend that is where we're headed. And if that's where we're headed, that's how we should act now. If that's where our destination, that determines who we are now. If that's where we're going to follow God, to be His, to be His children, to live with Him forever, then we act like it here now where we live in the earthly Jerusalem. We are headed there and we know that's our destination. So we change how we live now in light of where we're going. So that when we go there it's not going to be jarring. It's not going to be different. It's going to be who we are naturally. It comes because we've been changed. Now we Don't live anymore for that earthly pleasure, but now we're living for our heavenly home. We know this. And so that's how we live in light of being children, with our eyes always fixed to the horizon with hope and expectation, with faith, knowing where we're going, that infects right here, right now, that we can live as good neighbors, we can live as good husbands and, and, and wives, we can live as good sons, we can live as good parents here and now. Why? Because who we are in Christ has changed us, and we live in light of where we're going. So when we live as children of the promise, we live as He calls us to live expression of that salvation we have received, and we respond with all of who we are, keeping our eyes fixed on that promise, knowing that he who gives and grants and achieves his own promise is going to do the same with us, that he who began a good work in us brings it to completion, that our God who calls us his He's going to call us home and we'll be His forever as we live as children of the promise. Join me in prayer. Dear Father, thank You so much for who You are and Your love that You pour out on us. Lord, we thank You for Your Word where we can read it and we can see how Your Word tells a unified story of salvation that Paul can take a story of Abraham and trace it to us present day and about how this is how God has saved us. This is how God loves us. This is how we are supposed to be his. And Lord, I pray for everyone here that we can be children of the promise, live as children of the promise, meaning that we don't view our relationship with you as a list of rules of do's and do nots, but we view our relationship with you as being our father. And as our Father, you mark how we should live. As our Father, you give us guidelines and pull us into the correct living. As our Father, we take our lineage from you. So Lord, I pray for everyone that we can live as children of the promise, doing what you've called us to do, loving as you've called us to love, serving as you've called us to serve, giving as you've called us to give. Do all these things out of an overwhelming sense of love and gratitude, because you have saved us. Lord, we love you. Let us be yours. I pray all these things.